Before we begin, we want to take a moment to thank our sponsors at Audible. Now that the weather's getting nicer, I'm back to reading and listening to books in the park. And with Audible, it's never been easier. Every month, I get one credit to pick any title, plus two Audible originals from a monthly selection. In addition, I get access to news digests from the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and the Washington Post. If you go to audibletrial.com slash ymopodcast, you'll get two free audiobooks on us. Download thousands of titles offline anytime, anywhere. Having trouble deciding what to pick? Audible lets you keep your credits for up to a year. Find your summer read and support your favorite National Film Registry podcast. Once again, that's audibletrial.com slash ymopodcast. Thank you for your support. And now, on with the show. Gentlemen, what's your favorite modern comedy group? It's almost weird to say modern because in my mind it's modern because modern is anything that happened after I was born. But I guess in a way this group has continued doing interesting things even after they stopped being all together. That's kind of how I view it, which is um, there was this for, for the youngins out there. Uh, MTV had a sketch show in the 90s called The State and they were doing some of the most interesting and, and fun sketches you'll ever see. Uh, and I love the state. I have the box set they finally put out. But what's cool is that members of the state have gone on to do a whole bunch of other things together. Wet Hot American Summer features a lot of the state crew. Um, you know, the 10, a lot of the, any of the um, David Wayne or, or Michael Showalter projects. Reno 911 comes from the state crew, Viva Variety. And now Reno 911's back again. It's not enough to say that I loved the state. It's the fact that I still think everything they have done after that, any of the ancillary stuff that involves a lot of the crew, I think is fantastic. So if I'm talking about a modern comedy group that I think really just delivers in every form, it's the state for me. Uh, for me, uh, the Rough House crew, Danny McBride's team, anything Danny McBride and those guys do, it's just so goddamn funny, so goddamn viciously satirical. They just have their finger on the pulse of, like, just the world and just toxic masculinity and all of that. It's just, uh, I mean, Eastbound and Down, fucking iconic. One of the funniest goddamn shows in the world. Vice Principals was great, and it got Walton Goggins involved in this crew. And The Righteous Gemstones is just one of the best shows on TV right now. And then even the movies they do, you know, some are successful, some are not, but, like, um... The Foot Fist Way is really funny. Observe and Report is probably the best dark comedy of like the last 20 years. It's just, it's so fucking perfect. And then even like the other things they do that now, like now they're doing like the Halloween movies, which is, you know, not comedy, but like they bring their sensibility to that and bring their eye for the way the world works to that. And I think those are great. I love Danny McBride. I love Edie Patterson and Walton Goggins. David Gordon Green is a great director of these guys of, of comedy and just a, just a great director in general. So uh, anything Danny McBride and that team puts their mind towards, I'm always there for it. And I, I just, I really do just love what those guys do. Every year since 1989, the Library of Congress has selected 25 films to add to the National Film Registry. The criteria? The films must be culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. 
Each week on You're Missing Out, we take a look at one of these films to try and get to the heart of why they were selected and why they still matter. This week, we'll be discussing the final Marx Brothers film released by Paramount Pictures. Comic playwright Mark Levy joins us for 1933's Duck Soup. Rizza, Jizza, Old Dirty Bastard, Method Man, Raekwon, Ghostface Killer, Inspector Deck, You God, Master Killer, and Cappadonna. That, folks, in the comedy world is what they refer to as a callback. And we are talking about comedy today. We're talking about one of the quintessential comedies today. So I thought we would do that fun callback to a previous episode. Uh, Joining us today, however, to discuss uh, this film, uh, to discuss the Marx Brothers Duck Soup, is the writer and performer of Blockbuster Guy, a a one-man show, the host of uh, several podcasts on silent podcasts. Mark Levy joins us today to talk about the Marx Brothers Duck Soup. Mark, thanks so much for joining us. I am so excited. I'm happy you brought that up, but also... We're going to bring it up later anyways, but I mean, like, the unspoken member of the Wu-Tang, Redman, also we have to shout out now, too. Although well, it's not of, official of course, member. they were unspoken. Yeah, but I just, yeah. that is, for anyone who doesn't recall, uh, mm-hmm. like Tom, who definitely does not remember this conversation, uh, Tom, on Meshes of the Afternoon, we started talking about the Wu-Tang Clan, and I offhandedly said, oh, you said we don't have time for this now, and I offhandedly said we'll, we'll continue it on Duck Soup. I just remembered it, so I decided we had to. You did know. you remember when I texted it to you while listening to the episode? Or no, you... no recollection of of. Uh, <laughs> no, I literally was um, on my way home from work. And I'm like, all right, let's go. So that should be addressed up top for folks wondering. Uh, Mark is here in part because uh, we've uh, we've known Mark a long time. We've uh, we we used to work uh, with Mark at a, at a movie theater in, in New York, and has been listening to the show. Going way, way back, we had an earlier version of this podcast that folks have heard select episodes from, uh, we were doing that, what, Tom, back in like 2018 we were doing that show? Something like that. Something like that, yeah, around yeah. then, a little bit we, before then, too. We did a bunch of episodes of, of an old podcast. We've let people hear maybe three of them because most of them are uh, just shouldn't be heard by human ears. They're just not very good. In fact, interestingly, on our old podcast, we talked about Duck Soup one episode. So this is a fun thing to kind of revisit. Uh, Mark had been listening to that show, has uh, been listening to this show, and uh, is a big uh, comedy fan. Is you know, I, I think it's fair to say, uh, been been hanging around the New York comedy scene for a, a, a good, long, healthy time. I think that's fair to to say. Yeah, my brain doesn't <laughs> process it as that long because, but also it's that thing of like, I've lived in New York for over thirteen years, and I've been in the comedy scene since twenty ten. So my brain doesn't process it as that long, but it, I guess so, yeah. <laughs> well, and uh, so we knew this was coming up. We 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 hit you up because you've always uh, every time I've I've run into you, you've you've said, hey, you know, uh, if if you if you need, want me to come on for something, I'm I'm down. And this felt like a this felt like a good fit. This is also, by the way, me saying that not an invitation for other people to just start telling us, hey, <laughs> if you want me to come on, I'll I'll do what you need. Please don't. Um, or I guess just email Kyle because sometimes you know let let him deal with that. But uh, yeah, we have a show email for a reason, Mike. Yeah, yeah. If you if you message Tom, he'll just respond no, as if I'm going to respond to an email. <laughs> Mark, we're, we're we're happy you came on to join us to talk about Duck Soup, one of the kind of quintessential film comedies. 
before we get into anything else, why don't you tell us a little bit about what is your history with the Marx Brothers? What's when did you first discover them, and and what is your history? Because I think this is you know kind of a bit more yeah. of a treatise on the Marx Brothers as well. So what is your history with the Marx? Um, I mean, uh, my whole family is Brooklyn Jews, uh, for lack of a better word, and that's basically what the Marx Brothers were. Um, and my whole family has always been big fans of comedy. Um, I was raised on Buster Keaton, Charlie Chaplin, and Marx Brothers. Uh, then of course things more more recent than that. Uh, some of them have been canceled because, you know, things, some things are bad. Uh, but I've been raised on Marx Brothers. I've been raised on Chaplin. I love a lot of the Sonic comedies. I'm a big fan of a good pratfall. I'm good, a big fan of quick-witted comedy. Um, and one of the things I always love about the Marx Brothers is that you get your physical comedy and you get your word comedy, um, which I think it was the best way, the best of both worlds, especially like in the 30s. Um, now, Tom, b- before we get into the, you know, the, the statement and everything like that, obviously I alluded that we, we watched this film for a previous podcast, but, but what is your kind of history with and familiarity with the Marx Brothers prior to this particular podcast, besides the fact that obviously you are a uh, descendant of Chico Marx? Uh, I am a descendant of Chico. We don't speak ill of Chico in this household. If you do, you're going to get a nice walloping. Yeah, I mean, the Mars Brothers wasn't a thing that was around my house when I was a kid. Um, I got to it much later. You know, we had the old show, and there was a Black Friday where uh, this Marx Brothers Blu-ray set was really cheap. So I picked it up because, well, I was going to do it for the old show. Might as well watch some of their other stuff. I feel like most people our generation, their connection, if any, to the Marx Brothers is that uh, it's basically just Looney Tunes cartoons. Basically did what they did but as cartoons so we kind of know uh their thing in that form which is uh especially true for me so uh yeah i watched it a few years ago on the old show and uh rewatched it again now and uh i mean you know what 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 can we say i mean we're gonna have to say some stuff but what can you say it's the marx brothers they're uh <laughs> they're, they're a nice little group of guys they're, they're a bunch of stinkers now I will say there is there is uh, another way I think that some young people or people our age pick up uh-huh, Marx Bros uh-huh. routines, which is oh no Mark I'm not going where where you think I'm going I'm sure but uh, which is um, we, we pick it up the way I picked it up which is our uncles or grandfathers oh, nope. repeating jokes that the Marx Brothers had done in films and us at age four being like holy shit this guy's a comedic genius. <laughs> that's like I remember like that's the thing that sticks out distinctly in my mind is so much of that vaudeville borscht belt uh-huh. humor i i had heard so it was it was you remember when the dam broke on carlos mencia and people started posting all the clips of other oh, comedians doing those okay. jokes first that was me going through classic hollywood as i was just like 12 years old and slowly going but i thought my grandfather came up with that bit like <laughs> watching a jimmy durante movie or something and being like but wait a second hang on as though, like, I thought I had our personal Don Rickles hanging around. And, you know, it's like, no, a lot came from that. <laughs> it's interesting. I feel like one thing is, you know, there are certain things that you talk about. That you're either a, a Beatles household or a Rolling Stones household, right? Yeah. You know, you're either a, a Betty fan or a Veronica fan. You're really thinks. I do think there is something to the fact that you're either a Marx Brothers house or a Stooges house. You can't, you can like both, but I think there's one that, like, your old man is going to put on the TV and, and watch. Uh, more frequently now 
I kind of, I came to the Marx Brothers a little later. I shouldn't say later. It wasn't like college or anything like that. But I just, I remember, I remember being in like middle school and the AFI had put out their list of the greatest movies of all time. And I was familiar with the Marx Brothers, like Tom alludes from the Looney Tunes doing riffs on it, but also in certain Looney Tunes cartoons or Disney cartoons, caricatures of the Marx Brothers would show up. And yeah. I had seen old Groucho Marx on the Dick Cavett show because Groucho lived a long time. Groucho he died lived... in the 70s, right? Like he was yeah. 90 something years old when he died. And everyone else died in the 50s, I think, right? Yeah. He lived long enough to see like the counterculture of the 60s embrace these movies and he would show up on Dick Cavett. And if anybody here is a Howard Stern listener, Gilbert Godfrey used to always go on Stern and do impressions of Groucho on the Dick Cavett show. Because Groucho <laughs> on the Dick Cavett show, like Dick Cavett was always like giving him rapt attention. But Groucho by this point is so old, he's not even doing bits. He would just start going, and when you go to MGM, they used to have pull cars. We don't have pull cars anymore. It was just insane. But yeah. so I knew Groucho from Dick Cavett's show, which is why for the longest time I will own this. For the longest time, I did not know the mustache was fake. I mean, I, it does. It's okay. To a young person, I think it looks real enough. Plus, it looks like there's something underneath it, too. Well, plus, is there a, yeah. he had the mustache when he was older, right? Right. When he was older, he actually grew the mustache. And also, I was used to Batman 66, where Cesar Romero had painted over his own mustache. Right. So I guess in my head, I conflated it. But I had seen Groucho, and then AFI put out this list, 100 Greatest Films. Duck Soup was on there. I think it was the only Marx Brothers film on there. When they wasn't hit their revised... Uh, wasn't Night at the Opera the original? I could have sworn Night at the Opera gets on the revised list 10 years later. I know it's on the list at some point. I, I think the second list also has Night, in the, uh, Night at the Opera, because I think the first list... We forget there are certain things on that first list that no one recalls is there. Yeah. Uh, like Dr. Zhivago is on the first list, which no disrespect to Dr. Zhivago. I've got nothing against Dr. Zhivago, but it's just like, oh, right, that was there. Wuthering Heights, uh, I think. But so I saw Duck Soup, and obviously for an angsty kid amidst the Bush era, it, it felt like a, a revelation. And then I went down, like Tom's talking about the Blu-ray set. I think the first thing I picked up was I, there was, a, I think, a DVD box set, but it was a very chaotic set. I think it was like... It had some of the MGM, some of the Paramount, a little oh. out of order. It's very weird. Uh, the Blu-ray set Tom's describing is, I think, the five Paramount films. I think it's yeah. it's Coconuts through Duck Soup. But yeah, and I was immediately struck by it. And like Tom's saying, you do see a lot of that from the cartoons. You do see a lot. But there's just something about that that chemistry that just popped, that, with that wild energy. But before we get into Duck Soup specifically and what we think of Duck Soup, let's talk about what the National Film Registry had to say. Here's what the Library of Congress had to say about Duck Soup. A combination of musical mayhem and political satire finds the Marx Brothers, under the direction of Leo McCary, at the center of war between tiny Fredonia and its neighbor Sylvania. The reliably clueless Margaret Dumont is there to bear the brunt of Groucho's wisecracks. Famous for the scene in which Chico and Harpo impersonate an unwitting Groucho in front of a mirror, the film is generally acknowledged as the brothers' masterpiece. Unlike many directors, McCary, whose credits also include the registry comedies Ruggles of Red Gap and The Awful Truth, successfully tempered the patented Marx mania without inhibiting it. Now, one thing I want to single out from that is I'm thrilled that the statement acknowledges Leo McCary, mm -hmm. 
because Leo McCary has such an accomplished career as a filmmaker. They mentioned Ruggles and they mentioned The Awful Truth, but he did a ton of Charlie Chase films. He did the Best Picture nominee, Love Affair, which uh, he later himself remade as an affair to remember, but Love Affair is, is just gotten the Criterion Collection. He won Best Picture for Going My Way. He made Make Way for Tomorrow. So as much as we talk about this as a Marx Brothers film, uh, it's also important to acknowledge just how much Leo McCary brought to this film to kind of pull it all together. So I'm, I'm very glad they acknowledged that up front. So we talked about our relationship with the Marx Brothers more broadly. Mark, do you recall the first time you saw Duck Soup and what your impression of it was when you saw it? I don't fully recall it, uh, but it actually falls back to where I thought you were going to be going earlier when you were talking about your grandparents uh, making the bits and about about uh, Marx, like doing recalling the bits. Uh, for me, uh, I was a really big Animaniacs kid, and they definitely have done a couple of uh, mm, long yeah. bits and episodes actually straight up as Duck Soup. And I do recall that I saw it around that same time. Um, so it has like that weird Spaceball Star Wars thing for me, which I'm not sure if I saw Duck Soup first or the Animaniacs episodes. So I know I haven't seen it much until I was an adult, but I have seen it a couple times before when I was a small kid. Um, like I definitely remember the musical numbers, especially, and the mirror sequence a lot uh, be- from when I was a kid. But I mean... There's some great things in this movie that I really wish I remembered as a kid, as an adult. Like the first time you get really interested in Chico and Harpo with the whole peanuts and the poor salesman, stuff like yeah. that. Um, I know has shaped my sense of humor because my, my, my sense of humor can be kind of rascally, uh, which is the best way to describe Harpo. Um, rascally. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, granted, I talk a lot more than Harpo, uh, but... I don't know. I mean, it's like, I remember it was probably early 90s when I first saw this movie. I don't recall it much because my grandpa showed me everything. Uh, you, you know, I mean, the first time I saw it was for the show because um, the old it was just always a thing. Yeah. yeah, the old version of the show. Uh, it's just one of those things where wasn't in the house. My parents didn't show it to me. My grandparents didn't show it to me. So I just, it was always a thing like I kind of got connections to from looney tunes and all that and uh you know i'd always really kept meaning to get into it because um uh devil's rejects is so heavily not inspired by the by it's not inspired by the marks but you know rob zombie clearly loves the marks brothers by having them uh use names that the marks brothers used and there's like a whole bit in the devil's rejects where this film critic is explaining to them like this is the marks brothers names and all that and blah 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 and you know, like Mark said, like, yeah, this guy, this guy lived a long time. He died four days before Elvis, but then yeah. his, his kind of whole, you know, mourning period was pretty much put to an end once Elvis died. Um, so always having that was always something like, I should finally start getting to the Marx Brothers. And again, that even like exponentially grew when for a long time, Rob Zombie wanted to make a Last Days of Groucho biopic. Mm-hmm. which I still just is a fascinating prospect to me. I would love to see what he would do with something that far outside of his usual genre uh, bent. But um, it's almost weird to, it's, it's almost like a weird question to even ask, like what's your initial, like, you know, how you got into the Marx Bros first time you watched it, because uh, it's just so ingrained in comedy at this point that it just feels like you're watching 
90 years of comedy anytime you watch one of their stuff at this point. So it's it's this weird feeling of it's not that it's bad or unfunny. It's just, oh, I'm now seeing where this came from. Okay. It's that Rosetta Stone thing we keep running into with this show, which is it's so influential. You might not remember when you first saw it because, like Mark said, you might conflate it with the Animaniacs or Looney Tunes or whatever. It's just the tendrils are everywhere. And um, even with, you know, like, you know, Mike says you're either a Marx Brothers guy or a Three Stooges guy. Uh, I feel more, I mean, I'm definitely more of a Three Stooges guy, but it's also, I feel, of the early black and white comedy teams. I'm an Abbott and Costello guy, and you can yeah. even see what, like, like yeah, their yeah. tendrils in that without being as explicit as some other things can be. So it, it is just, you know, it, I feel like it's been a while on this show since we've gotten to one of these, oh, okay, I see where everything I've ever watched my entire life has come from. And uh, this, I mean, yeah, this is absolute. this is maybe, maybe the biggest one we've done so far of, okay, yeah, this is everything. Well, it's also interesting because this is like one of the earliest big sort of political satires out there or war satires, you know? Well, um, it comes, I, it's interesting you bring that up. It comes at a time where there's actually a weird spring of them, too. Okay. Because um, around this same time, it's interesting, around this same time, you actually had a, a number of very similar comedies pop up. Because the one thing to remember about Duck Soup, we talk about this a lot when we're talking about what films, you know, we lose sort of context over time, right? We lose uh, context for certain things. Um, that are being spoofed or being... We talked about this with um, Love Me Tonight with Maurice Chevalier, and we've talked about this with certain popular genres that that are no longer popular. One thing that's interesting, and we're going to talk about this more next season, actually. Are you guys familiar with the novel The Prisoner of Zenda? Or the film is The Prisoner of Zenda? No. Well, it's the film version is in the registry, so we will be talking about it next season. But The Prisoner of Zenda is an adventure book published in the 1890s by Anthony Hope. Basically, within The Prisoner of Zenda is the DNA for every adventure story and spy story that you ever get. Um, it's, a, it's a swashbuckling adventure about this English tourist who looks exactly like the king of this foreign kingdom called Ruritania. And he gets swapped for the king. And there's an assassination plot, and they have to raid a castle, and there's guns and swords everywhere. It, it's great. It's a lot of fun. But it launched this genre of literature and fiction called the Ruritanian Romance. Uh, and the Ruritanian Romance was essentially, remember, we're in the early 1900s now. All of these European kingdoms, all of these many, many European countries, you know, uh the, the big and small you know you're 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 hungry or all of this all of these countries that had this aristocracy and these these this incredible pageantry and all of this wealth among their upper classes are collapsing they're collapsing either to democracy or to communism or any of these things um but there was still kind of a mystique to them so from this springs the genre of the Ruritanian romance which is these visions of going off to these far-off lands and having these adventures and these strange and, and wondrous kingdoms and all of the goings-on and the palace intrigue and, you know, all of that. 
duck soup, amongst others, are are spoofs of Ruritanian romances, um, which were a popular genre at that time, but by now had reached the point where they were being spoofed and being used as political commentary. So one thing folks should note when we're talking about duck soup, or around the same time, you also get, um, in 1932, uh, W.C. Fields has a comedy called Million Dollar Legs, which is similarly set in a fictional country. Uh, a, a, it's a spoof on a Ruritanian romance about this poor country that decides to enter the Olympics. Um, and then a year later, the duo of Wheeler and Woolsey make a movie called Diplomaniacs, which was being made concurrent to Duck Soup uh, at Paramount. And there's even allegations that they stole, that uh, Wheeler and Woolsey took jokes from Duck Soup uh, and the Marx Brothers while they were working on Diplomaniacs. And if they did, they can keep them because Diplomaniacs is terrible and also (laughs) wildly, wildly racist. I mean, literally in every way you can conceive it. Just holy shit. Like, toss it into the sun. I say all that to say, when we talk about Duck Soup, I was thinking about this recently, it should be noted that Duck Soup is not just a political satire. It is using the Ruritanian romance and spoofing the Ruritanian romance to make satirical commentary. So in a way, because the Ruritanian romance was popular then, I mean, the Prisoner of Zenda movie comes out like five years later, four years later, the David O. Selznick version that we'll be talking about next season. But there had been multiple versions before that. The Ruritanian romance is so big. In a way, Duck Soup is almost like like of the boys you know like how amazon has the boys or there were so many of these i don't necessarily love them all but there is this influx of can we use the superhero genre is so popular and it's so oversaturated can we use this genre to actually comment on things as they are can we use this fantasy to comment on our current reality and duck soup is doing that through the ruritanian romance um now, if you asked Groucho Marx about this, he would claim there wasn't really any satire. They were just anti-establishment, and they were just whatever's funny. But you can certainly feel the remnants of World War One in this. And also, uh, some people I was reading suggest that while Groucho and, and, and Chico may have been more broad, Harpo had actually been to Russia. He had been to Europe recently and had seen the rise of Hitler and was very, very concerned about the growing anti-Semitism in Europe. So he came back with much more of a pointed point of view on global affairs. Groucho, by his own accounts, is just burn it all down and who cares, irreverence. But I did just want to point out, Mark, when you're talking about political satire, like, mm-hmm. obviously, you know, we, you know, the idea of political satire has existed for, you know, oh, uh, for, ages. for centuries. Ages, yeah. But it was specifically using a popular subgenre of the time and through lampooning it also take shots at the world as it was, which I think makes this, that's an extra layer to this that now when you watch duck soup, nobody knows what a Ruritanian romance is. I never heard that phrase until today. So yeah. 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 We'll, we'll be talking about that a lot more next season with prisoner of Zenda, which is a fascinating, uh, fascinating thing. Yeah. Yeah. Very excited to talk about that, but I mean, so much so that this whole 
political thing going overseas and seeing the rise of everything is that this movie got banned in Italy because Mussolini thought it was about him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, the Marx Brothers were pretty happy about that because they're like, yeah. I, I think mean, my favorite controversy along with this movie is how Fredonia, New York was like, can you please mm-hmm. change the name of the city <laughs> of the country because it's making our city look bad? And then uh, they responded, uh, the, uh, Marx Brothers responded, can you like change the name of your city because you're making our movie look bad? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is one of those fascinating things with this film. I mean, and that's to take it back to when I first saw it. You know, I, I saw it on the CFI list. I watched it. And I also, I understand, Tom, why you are saying like you didn't come to it till later. Because I also think that, I mean, I came to it because I'm a big dork about lists and I'll watch everything on a list. But I do you feel never. like. Yeah. <laughs> but I do, I do feel like the Marx Brothers are one of those things. The Marx Brothers, Three Stooges, Little Rascals. There are certain, like, old comedy legends, or even, like, on TV, like an I Love Lucy or something like that, that you know of, and you grow up and absorb through osmosis so much that it always exists on this shelf of, I'll get to it. Mm -hmm. You know? Certain pieces of of film history or pop culture history where you're just like, I'll get to it. I will abs. You know you should. Like you abs. It's kind of like to to make this kind of come, but I feel like every uh, at least every uh, Italian American guy has a copy of the Bible in their house and goes like, "I know I should read this at some point," and tells themselves, "Eventually, I'm gonna read it." But there's never an urge to go over to the shelf and pluck it down and go, "All right, Genesis one one. Let's start from the top." You know what I'm saying? <laughs> well, like you said, and- yeah. I think it's also a little bit of just the thing I feel like we get into a lot on the show is just accessibility. You know, yeah. I don't think it was the easiest thing in the in the in the world for a while to get uh, your hands on Marx Brothers stuff or even like good copies because even now, like you watch like Coconuts on the Blu-ray and it looks like shit. You know, it's clearly like this was not stuff that was taken care of, and no. even with high def restorations and everything now. You know, where were you getting this stuff? Was there good copies or anything? It feels like with a lot of the comedies back then, it felt it feels like uh, it's kind of hard to get uh, a good grasp on them uh, because how how did they get released? Could did they get released? We talked about it with Harold Lloyd. That guy didn't even release this stuff because he was very controlling. Marx Brothers stuff not really taken care of well, and all of that. Uh, you know, same with Abbott and Costello until recently. It's um. Where do you find this stuff? If it's not playing at the the theater and it's not being played nonstop on fucking you know TNT or WB PIX eleven or whatever when you're a kid, um, where do you find it? And uh, you know, with all of that, it's like okay, it's hard to find. And also, I'll get to it eventually. Maybe it'll be easier down the road. Um, yeah, I mean, it's just one of those things where uh, time. Not really the kindest to this stuff. I mean, I, I was, yeah, I was actually shocked because I don't own this movie. Like, I it's I don't own many of the Marx Brothers movies. I only own A Night at the Opera. Um, and to get my hands on it, like I was expecting, I have, I think, eight different streaming services, and yeah. none of them had it on there for like free. Yeah. So like, and I mean, it's fine. I don't mind paying for it. But it's that thing of like, this is should be a lot easier. This is a classic film. That is still, you know, it's still inspiring comedy of this day. I think, I mean, when I, because I was, I was saying, you know, when I, when I saw it on the day of Fight List, I remember going out to uh, Hollywood Video 
And I think about this because um, when Connor Ratliff was on our show in season one to talk about Dr. Strangelove, uh, he told a great story about uh, getting it when he was a kid and sitting down with a group of friends and going, all right, guys, this is supposed to be the funniest movie ever made and it not playing well. I got together with a couple of buddies of mine saying, I've heard this is the funniest movie ever. And I had the opposite. I, I lucked out because it played like gangbusters, mm-hmm. you know, uh, decades later. Now, I also think part of it, and I alluded to this before, but like it obviously this is timeless and obviously whoever watches it whenever kind of relates to it. But I was watching, I, I came to Duck Soup in like the end of first term George W. Bush. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it seems anytime I talk about that now, it feels insanely quaint, um, <laughs> which is insane. But at the time, like for, for younger folks listening, um, maybe it sounds crazy now to say, like, oh, they, uh, you know, uh, we worried they might bring back the draft. But no, legitimately, that was a legit worry if you were in, like, middle school or high school. is like there was this thought of, like, is that where this is going? Because we just keep launching new campaigns in new places. And, like, the the media keeps talking about how the people running the country are just dopes and sycophants and opportunists. So the movie hit very hard then. I think when we talk about satire and political satire, you know, and obviously we can talk about Chaplin's Great Dictator or some of these other ones, but the thing that I think makes Duck Soup so interesting is that Rufus Firefly, Rufus T. Firefly, I I can never remember which name Groucho uses in what movie, because they don't matter. The names don't matter, but... Um, yeah, they always but, have a funny middle initial and, like, some, like, animal or... or well, it's like or it's word. like how the titles... <laughs> During yeah. the MGM era, the titles never matter. Like, you know, the Animal the Crackers, are... Horse Feathers, Duck Soup, they don't, they mean nothing. Yeah, what the but fuck wait, is isn't Animal soup? Crackers I... one of the names of Broadway plays? Yes, but that's the thing. Yeah. Even the plays, like, they had no right, coconuts, bearing. Yeah, yeah. Because Co- Coconuts is a hotel. They're all sort of like parodies of certain genres. So, like, Coconuts is this hotel right. thing, but the Marx Brothers are like secondary characters in it. Animal Crackers is, is Captain Spaulding. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's the, the, you know, the, the African Explorer one. Now remind me, I think Horse Feathers is the college one. I think that's, yeah, I think that's the college football. That's the one that's the spoof of like the collegiate craze, which we talked about yes. on the freshman. And then there's, and Monkey Business, they're on a ship. Monkey Business is the one where they're all aboard a ship. And Maurice Chevalier is like a plot point in that with Rufus Firefly. It's the fact that he's not playing Rufus as a bumbling idiot, nor is he playing Rufus as any particular political figure. He's just an agent of chaos. They're all just agents of chaos and opportunists. And there's nothing, there's no criticism of any particular ideology or anything like that. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I mean, not that the Marxists really ever had that. I think in Coconuts, which you mentioned before, there's one sort of like political joke which is one of my favorite groucho jokes tom do you know where i'm going with this because i know you watched it recently fuck no i don't know where you're going with this all the hotel staff is gathered around groucho demanding their paychecks and he goes gentlemen do think about it do you just want to be wage slaves no and what makes wage slaves wages yeah. <laughs> good bit they're all good bits um 
But like by the time you get to Duck Soup, which is the opposite end, because they obviously they made five films for Paramount. Mm-hmm. This is the fifth film. And what a lot of people get wrong about this is they think people come to the conclusion because first off, the idea this gets over exaggerated this movie was uh, uh you know, was just reviled. It was not the best reviewed in its time. Um, it made money too. It wasn't like a it was, it was the sixth highest grosser movie of the year it came out. And yeah. to go back to like something Mike was saying before of like watching it in the, fir- the tail end of the first George Bush term, which is just like the, the depression hit. You know, people are kind of not yeah. in the mood for something very cynical and politically like, hey, isn't doesn't everything fucking suck? And aren't our leaders just idiots doing things for the people? Just people weren't into that. You know, yeah. it's. And um, coming off, what the fuck was the one prior? I guess it was um, uh, the one prior to that is Horse Feathers. Yeah, so like Horse Feathers, big it's hit, the college big, one, yeah, you know, yeah, big hit, critical acclaim, all that stuff, big, you know. So kind of coming off of that, and this just deeply cynical thing in in the midst of the depression, it's just uh, it it does have that um, reputation of being oh it was a bomb, people didn't like it, blah blah blah, and it's no history doesn't really bear that out but yeah it wasn't and, their highest point at the time although it's the one that's on the national film registry now well, it was the first one on the, on the registry yeah they only they have, have two couple, right it's I just in the, in the right opera, the opera. Right? yeah you get one yeah. paramount one mgm but I, I some people get it in their heads and i think the popular myth is that this movie's poor reception is why they left paramount in fact the marx brothers were already done with paramount um because to hear the marx brothers tell it they were getting screwed monetarily. Mm-hmm. But also, they lost a ton of money in the stock market crash. They lost, I mean, I think, like, they're, they lost a ton of money, especially, I believe, Chico, I think. Or maybe Chico was the one who had nothing invested. But one of them not only lost money, but then kept spending from their personal savings to try and recoup, and it just went awry. And then around the same time, their mother died. Their mother had been the one that organized the act. So they Zeppo? were just... Because this was Zeppo's last movie, right? Well, Zeppo Before wanted like... out to begin with. Right. Never mind. Sorry, yeah. Yeah. So, but it is, you've got, you're right. This is Zeppo's last movie. because we have to, So the Marx Brothers formed as a vaudeville troupe. And originally, it was Groucho, Chico, Harpo, and Gummo, who was their oldest brother. Uh, they were doing vaudeville chains. And they were formed by their mother, because their mother was just like... I don't know. Go up on a stage, do do an act, make some money. <laughs> I think Groucho was the one who like first wanted to, and then everybody else followed suit. Gummo, I think, ends up getting drafted into the First World War, so Zeppo gets brought in to replace Gummo. Uh huh. So Zeppo didn't even want to do this to begin with, and then he kind of becomes their straight man. I don't know if he was necessarily resentful of not having a lot to do, but he was definitely aware that he didn't have a lot to do. And I think it was a lot of just the reception towards him yeah. definitely pushed him out of just like, oh, everyone keeps hating on me because I'm the unfunny one and blah, blah, blah. So fuck this. Why am I even doing this if I'm get just constantly dumped on? Which, I mean, fair enough. I guess a little bit of that is aimed at, well, he's not given much to do because I kind of just never really clock Zeppo every time he shows up in one of yeah. these things. Can I... like... He's pretty forgettable. Like Now, I would like yeah. to counter this, Tom. Have you seen the MGM stuff or just the Paramount stuff? Just the Paramount stuff, because okay. that's the only uh, set I the only ones I have on the set. Here's what I will say. You notice Zeppo a lot more after he's gone. 
insofar as when you okay. watch any of these, any of the MGM era, and especially stuff that comes way later, because they bring in other people to kind of fill the Zeppo straight man role, the romantic interest role. And like, if you watch, I think, Roommates um, or At the Circus, like the or any of these, like anybody that kind of is filling the Zeppo role feels so out of place. And it, it it's almost like, the way I could put it is it's almost like if a band had to replace its bassist. Mm-hmm. And you might think, look, the original guy wasn't John Entwistle. The original guy wasn't fucking, you know, uh, you know, whoever you want to pick for that. Uh, you know, you could find another guy to do the bass lines. But for some reason, they just can't get in the rhythm in the middle of a jam. There is something about when these other guys show up that you realize, like, Zeppo was, had come up with these guys. He knows exactly how to bounce off of them. Where even if he's not, if he's just there delivering exposition, or he's just there to be the guy that kind of gives Groucho the line to spoof or anything like that, you do, when you watch those later films, you realize how much they needed somebody. It's like Margaret Dumont. Anytime yeah, Margaret well, Dumont's not in one of these Marx Brothers films, you feel it because she just knows well, how to be there. I mean, well, it's also just like he, he is their brother. Yeah. So, like, anyone's going to have that ability to just know what to do with these guys, especially in the straight man role, because, uh, you know, it, it, people do kind of forget you do need the straight man, uh, you know, as my Abbott and Costello fandom, you know, that team wouldn't be as good without Abbott being the straight man, mm-hmm. kind of letting Costello be the fat little dope running around getting into hijinks and getting slapped around by Cost- uh, by Abbott for you know ordering too much food. Um, you know, you need that guy, and um, you know he doesn't have a a gimmick the way the other three do. Like you can just clock the other three immediately. So he does, you know, he does blend into the background because he's like a decent looking guy. He looks like he should be in a movie, if not a Marx Brothers movie. But yeah, it's just that, you know, comedy isn't just, you know, there's a balance to it. Uh, You know, Mark, I don't know if you know anything about comedy, but there's got to be a certain level of chemistry and balance to everything. You can't just... uh throw people together and expect them to to work i mean there has to be I mean, it's why you guys bounce off each other very well you know um no i have shop- no comedic talent whatsoever well we know this i'm Mike, the least funny like, person alive but it's that thing well, of you like, are my habit <laughs> well when you think like also bringing back the wu-tang clan like margaret dumont is the red man 100 like like uh, she basically no, that's is- a, that, yeah that's a thing that gets said a lot tom i think if you look most no, I'm Most not actually trying. Margaret Dumont is Red Man. That's it. Like, because like, I guess yeah, she is the Red Man because she's not one of the Marx Brothers, and she is kind of a an important element to things. Zeppo, huh? Zeppo, I want to say is you God. That makes sense. He's there because li- like, yeah. like we could live without you God. Although we miss him when he's not around. Uh, Groucho is a hundred percent. God, I don't even want to say he's just. I don't want to be this confident. Uh, no, Harpo is old, dirty bastard. Of course. Uh, Chico is Raekwon. Okay. No, Chico, 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 Chico is Method Man. Are we going obvious? Are we going very obvious with uh, Groucho? Like, well, who's obvious for? I mean, like he's the leader, so in my mind that'd be Rizza, but like. Okay, no, you know what? Groucho is Method Man because he's because Method Man is the best at the wordplay of the group. He's the 
uh-huh. the funniest. He can put the, the and he's together. normally with Margaret Dumont. Uh, so yeah, so like Method Man and, and uh, together. Uh, it's like how high, which is also you know, um, it's Animal Crackers. So uh, then Chico, I want to say it's Raekwon. <laughs> if only because I love watching Mike's soul die while watch while you and me are riffing on this. Well, uh, that's my entire goal with life is to make Mike suffer. Um, but Raekwon is Chico. Run. To get to get back to like a little bit like what we were, uh, while also with my point about Margaret Dumont, she kind of did fill in like the Zeppo role though. Like, like she is a straight man to the chaos. Yeah, but I think the difference is with Margaret Dumont, she also has a specific character to play, and she's a character that's being lampooned. Right, that's fair. She's always the old rich lady in all their movies. Exactly. She's not so much straight man because she is goofy. Yeah, and not and not getting what's happening. Zeppo Zeppo is like I said, he's the baseline. He's providing the support. He doesn't get a lot of flourish, but he's 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 giving what you got to give. Now with Duck Soup in particular, I mean, we talked about this is their last film with Paramount. They were already done with Paramount. They were already finished with their you know they were already moving on. And then while they were trying to stage a show, Paramount basically to try and I think it's to fulfill an obligation, whatever it was. They came back and made Duck Soup, but they were already, there was no plans to make more films at Paramount. I will say part of, I think, what makes Duck Soup work so well. I've got nothing against Night at the Opera. I like Night at the Opera. We'll be talking about Night at the Opera at some point in this podcast. But there is something about, if you watch the earlier Paramount films, it's basically just, and nothing against uh, Norman McLeod, who does some of the other ones, but it's basically just, all right, we're going to set up a camera and we're going to let the Marx Brothers do their show. You know, it's very similar to we were talking about the earlier Maurice Chevalier films and how it's just like, Maurice is going to do his shtick. We set up the camera, we call it a day. But when you look at what Ruben Mullion did with Love Me Tonight and how he starts working with them to go, well, what's the best thing I can do visually to enhance this gag? Um, you look at what Leo McCarry does and he is really able to take this film and make it I mean, there's like very few, not counting Harpo, who was doing silent comedy, who was doing physical comedy. There are very few visual gags in the earlier Marx Brothers film. There's like a close-up on a lifesaver candy and horse feathers. But, you know, the way that McCarry is playing with so many visual gags in this one and the way that he shoots it, I think, is, is really important. And because the Marx Brothers are done with their time at Paramount, it's very anarchic. It's just doing bits to do bits. It's doing whatever they feel like doing, going over the top. And then when they get to MGM, it all feels a lot more boxed in. You know, MGM era Marx Brothers, uh, MGM era Marx Brothers are a lot more controlled. It's a lot more organized. And Duck Soup is the antithesis of organized. Shit just happens in, these mo- in this movie. Um, the whole extended sequence of Chico and Harpo antagonizing the Peanuts guy has, n- or the Lemonade guy, um, has nothing to do with the rest of the film it just is a scene that happens in isolation it introduces it us to the characters so like i mean that's obviously important but, but I, does it because we i think we see chico earlier when he's yelling peanuts outside of firefly's office window you see it for like a second but like this is like after firefly because like it's like the movie starts off with the exposition and firefly enters and then like a few minutes later chico and harpo enter i think it's also I have like part of this is like I'm looking over my notes that I took the, uh-huh. the movie, and there's so so many things where I'm just responding like this bit's good, 
this bit is also still good. You're like, I like scissors. Um, scissors are fun. No, but it's like <laughs> it's it's like this thing of like just talking about like there's certain things where and we kind of have to address it. You're like, for me, this specific thing of the fact that Groucho has a nonplussed face whenever he does choreography is so fucking funny. I, I don't, it shouldn't be that funny, but every time he's just doing the big moves with the most yeah. unamused face is funny. The, you know, <laughs> he's so many little bits that just, it, this is like the earliest version of that airplane style, like throw a thousand jokes against the wall and see what uh-huh. sticks. But it also means like, Every time you watch it, you find new things that are just like, yeah, this is this this plays like gangbusters. This still works. Uh, you know, these little riffs are, you know, playing. Li- it just it all works. And that's I don't know. I no, it's, yeah, like yeah. I mean, thinking about like the intro of Rufus T. Firefly, like mm-hmm. uh, like how it's like all set up. Like she's like, I will give money as long as he's like in charge of the country. And then like they have this big song and dance number, and they're like, and here he is, and here he is, and like it goes on for a little while. Then his alarm goes off, and then he just shows up and starts singing. Uh, and he's like, okay, I'm just in the song now, and I guess I'll do the song. And well, like, and that's yeah. also the opposite of the Captain Spaulding gag, because yes. in this. It's them doing the hail, hail, Fredonia yeah. again and again to silence. Go back to Animal Crackers and the entire gag is every time he thinks the song is done. And he goes, I just want to say, hooray for Captain Spaulding. They do it again and again. There's a lot in this that is kind of like almost reflexive of bits or you sort of see the seeds for other bits or the payoff of other bits. I mean, hell, Harpo has a gag in this where he's got specific tattoos all over his body. Oh, it's so great. Of I love all of Harpo these so much. Right, of all these specific oh. things. And I kept looking at that and going, well, that's Lydia the Tattooed Lady. That's the song that comes along later in, is it Day at the Races that Lydia the Tattooed Lady is from? I don't, I'm not going to remember. Someone's going to yell at me, but I don't remember offhand. But yeah, you see so much of this as the, as the genesis of, of either the genesis of bits or the response to bits. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's uh, funny because Liam McCarry didn't want to do this goddamn movie. Yeah. He uh, essentially got tricked into it. Not really tricked, but like they wanted him to do it. He didn't want to do it. So they And they left Paramount. And so he thought, okay, everything's fine. I'll re-sign with Paramount. And then they came back. And so he was basically just trapped into making the movie. Like he doesn't like the movie. So it's just funny that. It feels like the chaos is almost just like, yeah, fuck it, whatever. Let's just do something. I, yeah. I don't care. I get me away from these fucking nut jobs. <laughs> um, and and it works. You know, it works. Uh, it's in the film registry, folks. Um, <laughs> it, it but is. It, it it is just funny that you, you're saying all of this and that the con- like the controlled chaos of the later stuff is like probably somebody who wanted to be there. Yeah, and <laughs> it just doesn't work. With uh, as well as just a guy who's got a gun to his head behind the camera saying, "All right, idiot." Film well, this I think it's, but I think it's also the element of when the Marx Brothers came to Paramount, they were. I wouldn't say Probably they would. Be, what? Well, that, they were, but I. They also were not willing to take anything because obviously there's a great gag or great story told that um, that he. Oh my God! Now I'm forgetting the name. Uh the the founder of Paramount, or the the head of Paramount at the time, 
see if I can look this up real quick. I'm probably not going to find it. But oh, is it? I think it's Adolf Zucker. Maybe I'm wrong. I think it's Adolf Zucker is the anecdote I heard. But that the Marx Brothers were approached by Paramount and they wanted seventy five thousand. And Adolf Zucker apparently, like, they told this to one of the Paramount reps who told it to Adolf Zucker, who basically said, those guys can go screw off. So they sent Zeppo to go meet Adolf Zucker. Because Groucho and all them were like, oh, we want all this money. And Zeppo apparently met with Zucker and immediately started saying how much of a privilege it was to be there with him, what great contributions he made to cinema. He's one of the, the founding fathers of cinema to even be in a room with him is such an honor and i would love to pick your brain and and hear all these stories i mean it's just it's something you know even if nothing comes of this it's something i'm going to tell my kids about and blah 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 blah. and he's really just zeppo is smooth talking i'm smooth talking him and he goes and and i want you to know mr zuko we're ready we're ready to give you everything we're going to bring you all our best bits we're going to bring you all our best gags we're going to we're going to bring you the scripts to all of our hit shows all for just a hundred thousand dollars and Zucker apparently looked to his right-hand man with a face of, well, yeah, why haven't we done this? Like, what's the problem? Let's do it already. <laughs> and Zeppo basically sweet-talked him into more money. But even so, they weren't getting the money they were supposed to get. They were supposed to get a lot more on the back end. Paramount went to a financial problem. When they go to MGM, they negotiate a contract for a lot more money. But with that money comes a lot more oversight. The studio heads and the, and the higher-ups are, are, are asking for a lot more, whereas mm-hmm. the Paramount stuff is very shoot-from-the-hip in some of the best ways. No. Well, I was about to say, you, like, you guys will be talking about this for another year, but, like, I really do wonder what it was like on the set for Unite the Opera, their first movie at MGM, to, like, like how much was the chaos there and how much of it was... Because, like, the movie is pretty chaotic for one of the... Yeah. Like, it's it's I'd say it's not as duck soup as duck soup, but it's like the stateroom scene is my favorite Mark Spiller scene of all time. Yeah. Um, well, Night of the Opera is a lot more kind of linear and it has a plot. Duck um, soup has almost a plot, uh, kind of. But I think what happens is if you look at Coconuts, which is their first film, right. they're still following the stage show format, which is when they were on stage and they were doing their Broadway shows. Yes, the Marx Brothers had their gags, but there were a lot of songs. There was a romantic plot. There were other characters. By the time Leo McCary comes on for Duck Soup, the decision is made to strip a ton of that shit away. A lot of that gets thrown at. I think McCary even wanted to get rid of, like, the rules of my administration, uh, that number, which, thank <laughs> God, he didn't. But, like, there's just a lot of the way. In fact, you know, so many of those early Marx Brothers films have Harpo having a piano solo, which is not a gag. It's just Harpo playing the piano. Duck Soup doesn't have that, and apparently fans at the time were mad about that. I thank fucking God we don't have to sit through a Harpo piano solo. Uh, I'm very happy with the movie we get. This is just a lot more like... Duck Soup, to me, has the feel of... You know, there's that story, maybe it's apocryphal, but like when Spielberg and Lucas were talking about Raiders of the Lost Ark, and they were talking about all their favorite adventure and action movies, and allegedly said something along the lines of, why can't you take out all the boring parts and just have the fun? Duck Soup is that. It's it's looking at the older Marx Brothers plays and the mm-hmm. older Marx Brothers movies. You're going, why can't it just be the fun stuff? And so it doesn't have the most cohesive plot. I mean, we basically jump right from uh, the incredible mirror gag with oh, them, God. you know, disguised as as Groucho in his pajamas. That wonderful pantomime mirror gag, and then you jump right to the trial scene 
which mm-hmm. has some of the best wordplay gags of all time. Uh, you know, you can't fool me. There ain't no sanity clause. Is is a flawless gag. <laughs> it's a great gag. Chico has a million of those great kind of those great kind of lines. As it, you know, is is I. <laughs> you sold him the plans. I sold him a coat and two pairs of plans. Come on, it's good stuff. <laughs> it's good gags. And then, like the last chunk of the movie is war. It's like a montage of war, like a montage. It's literally, yeah. And it's it's you know with with I think perhaps the darkest joke in any Marx Brothers movie when they tell when Groucho grabs the gun and starts shooting. They tell him you're shooting your own men. Oh god! Just so bleak. It's so fucking bleak. I think that might be part of the reason people had a resistance to this movie too. Is the idea of like. When you went to see Horse Feathers, it was making fun of college kids. When you went to see uh, when you went to see Monkey Business, it's making fun of people rich enough to be on a boat, right? Mm-hmm. Like the early Marx Brothers films are just dunking on rich people. Animal Crackers—they're all just dunking on rich people. And th- <laughs> this one is not—it is that Doctor Strangelove kind of thing in a way of like, right? Real people, regular people, are gonna die. Because they're just killing, people are just dying. It's insane. And that's, I mean, my favorite moment in the movie, one of my favorite moments in any movie, and I've said this to Tom before, like we often talk about when we're, when we're feeling depressed at the state of the world, which happens a lot now. Uh, mm-hmm. Tom often, uh, not to speak of him too much, but like often goes back to that scene in In the Mouth of Madness where Sam Neill is just laughing <laughs> at the screen. And for me, like nowadays, because I'm even more cynical, I think nowadays I I go to the ending of Nashville, which is one Ooh. of my favorite. Like just ultimately cynical. Everybody's singing "It Don't Worry Me" as they're scrambling to cover up a murder. Um, but but before that, when I was you know a teenager in the Bush administration, especially second term Bush administration, um, the musical number about going to war. You know, the Fredonia's going to war, going into all God's children got guns mm-hmm. is one of the most uh, it's one of the most darkly funny sequences in any movie. Because there's, you know, we talk about Great Dictator. There's some gags in Great Dictator, you know, the, the Chaplin's fake Hitler bouncing the world like a balloon. But that at least ultimately ends in a, a speech Optimism. of like, we can be better. Yeah. Yes. And. All God's Children Got Guns is just, it, it is a mockery of any idea of the valor of war. And the amazing thing is, like, it's it's a mix of, like, modern Major General from Pirates of Penzance, you know, riffing on the absurdity of the idea of honor in the military, but also, like, that we're all just going to die. We're all we're all going to be wiped out. It's, it is Dr. Strangelove-esque in that way, that that kind of just bleakness of it so that for a long time was like the scene i would go to in terms of like this is you know just anytime i felt like the world was just about to collapse like that is what i would think of it's also just i mean pretty perfect especially you know for the mars brothers doing this kind of story that this whole war just starts because groucho keeps slapping this fucking guy for calling him an upstart (laughs) (laughs) and the better thing is it starts because you have that bit where they basically go, he's coming over to, you know, he's coming over to apologize. And it's like, mm-hmm. well, you know, what, what, what if I, and Groucho basically works himself into thinking like, well, what if he doesn't and decides to preemptively 
hit yeah, the guy for yeah, it's all a ploy to try to get this guy to hit him so they could kick him out of the country but Croucho just can't help himself and the guy calls him an upstart and he just slaps him in the face <laughs> i mean it is just that perfect cartoon logic that's also is that kernel of truth to it which is just these fucking leaders are just getting us into goddamn wars we don't want to be in for the dumbest goddamn reasons in the world. It's so and, depressing, though, like, with the future, you know? With, like, the immediate future after this movie. I mean, yeah, we're f- six years, seven years away from World War Two. I mean, Hitler's on the Not rise even. at this point. No, 35, right? Is that when it started? Well, this is 30. Well, no, I mean, the war in large pretty much started, like, 39, 40. Oh, okay. he's, take, he's taking over stuff around like, right. 35 and everything, but... The the war in tr- like full force doesn't really start until like thirty nine forty, but you know Mussol you know like I said Mussolini you know he got pissed off seeing this movie so he's in power you know Stalin's over there um all this stuff is happening and um you know it's just one of those things like ah, fuck I forget which movie we were talking about something of just how like there there was something in the air yeah. and people were that was smart enough and artistic enough with the satirical eye. We're seeing this, that there was just something going on and they, they just like latched onto it. And it just gives them these weirdly timeless uh, feels because they don't, they're not actively about, you know, the Nazis or world war two or whatever, but it's still just that thing of, Oh, right. Uh, this is, this wasn't that far away from uh, what was about to fucking happen. Well, especially um, because think about it, you know, you've got another film we covered this season. The it was right. the and and also Dodsworth because I remember pointing out uh, how the movie ends, and it's like, oh yeah, she almost married a German like royalty <laughs> guy, like right <laughs> right before the Nazis were about to take over. So, uh, good good job skirting that issue. Well, I think it's also like one of the things, whether they meant it that way or not, you know, think about All Quiet on the Western Front comes out around this time, which we yeah. also covered on this show. And All Quiet on the Western Front is one of those looking at World War One from the perspective of we must never let this happen again. We will never let this happen again. And Duck Soup seems to look at that and go, I don't believe you. Like, yeah, I don't yeah. believe you'll never let this happen again. And I mean, because there's something about, you know, the... That moment, maybe it's just me overthinking because I've watched this for so long, but like the soldiers are all marching and they're playing on their heads like a xylophone with straight yeah. faces, too. Just bum, bum, ba, da, 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 bum, ba, da, da. and then <laughs> Harpo cutting off the feathers. And there's something about it where it's like, on the one hand, that's just a funny gag because they're hitting their helmets. But in the context of the scene, you are just thinking, like, right, these guys are ready to die. For a bunch of cartoon characters that are just fucking with them. You know, and I think that that's, that's the thing that is really the most d- upsetting element of Duck Soup in the best way is like that it's one thing to have a, a leader, a despotic leader who thinks, who believes in the cause, right? Who believes in whatever cause is setting him off for. They don't believe in it. They got nothing. They're, they don't care. They will. They will send these guys up. They'll shoot at them themselves. They don't care. It means nothing. Um, you know, it. It's just. It's just buffoons screwing things up. And I think that what makes it so effective too is the idea of like when, to bring it back, when the Stooges do 
war-based comedy. They're soldiers in a platoon, right? Mm-hmm. They're, they're fucking with. They're always like normal people. Yeah, they're they're fucking with the higher ups. You know, I think yeah. there's a there's a Three Stooges short where they're in the military. I mentioned it on the All Quiet and Western Front uh, episode, so I don't remember the name of it. But it's a short where it basically just starts with like they're they're on the run because they uh, tried to tried to hook up with this guy's wife. <laughs> And then it turns out they join the army to get away, and it turns out that guy's their drill sergeant, so they just screw with him. But it's like, it's punching up, whereas with the Marxes mm-hmm. and what they're doing in Duck Soup, it is very, like, they're, they have the most power. And immediately you know that somebody like Groucho Marx should never have power. He's just going to use it for the, you know. It's, um, it's, it's an interesting way of punching up by punching down. Yeah. You know, it's that it's like, look at what these assholes in power do to you people mm-hmm. that are going to m- march off and die for what you're told is a worthy cause, when really it's just a dick measuring contest between two imbeciles. Um, they also kind of, I mean, this movie also kind of does that sleeping with the wife bit where uh, Harpo oh, ends up in the bathtub with the, pe- with the peanut uh, salesman, but then also, like, you kind of get the hints that he's kind of been working his way through the women of the, t- oh the town. Oh my god, yeah. <laughs> oh, well, Harpo um, is... Oh god. I think in, in the documentary on the Blu-ray set, I think it's called, like, The Kings of Hollywood Chaos, every commentator basically goes, you couldn't do that Harpo bit. To-. Like, Harpo is just terrible to women in all of these movies. He's just harassing women left, right, and center. But it only works because what's what's the payoff of that bit? He's in bed with the horse. Yeah. And yeah. that's what made it okay. I mean, shit, That's you can't even like, do most of most of Groucho's bits with the with um fucking what's her name? I'm, uh, Margaret Dumont. Margaret Dumont, where he's just constantly like fat shaming her and just just constantly just degrading her to her face, and she just doesn't even get it. Absolutely would not it. fly today. Yeah, well, then would not I, even fly today. I now I'm going to quote a bit, and if it's not from this movie, I'm going to feel like an asshole. But I think the marriage proposal is in this one, right? Where he tries yeah. to marry the two women at once. Is that in this one or is that an early one? No. Maybe that's Adam No, he, he just he just, he does he does propose to Margaret Margaret Dumont in this where he goes, uh what is did you, did your husband leave? Uh do you want to get married? Did he leave you a lot yeah. of money? Answer the second question first. Yes. No, there's one, I think it's Animal Crackers. Yeah, was with her she was with them till the end and oh, yeah. it was a suicide, yeah. <laughs> um there's one there's one where there's I think it's Animal Crackers where there's two women and he goes he goes, so what do you say we all get married? Get married? Well, that's bigamy. Yeah, well, it's bigamy, too. Good bit. Good bit. Um, married. No, this, I can see, yeah. married. I can see right now in the kitchen, bending over a hot stove, but I can't, see, I can't the see the stove. Um, I, my dear, I could dance with you until cows came home. Actually, I'd rather dance with the cows until you came home. There's, a, <laughs> there's an incredible one, by the way, in, because I didn't, I didn't get it when I, because I think I saw her, Horse Feathers when I was real young. It didn't land. There's an incredible bit in Horse Feathers where he's, calling up some woman there's a a college widow uh that's the whole thing is is zeppo plays groucho's son in that one and zeppo wants to marry a college widow uh in which groucho goes you know uh you know he says something uh something about like uh you know uh a college widow used to stand for something actually a college widow used to stand for a lot um but then later he calls her up (laughs) and he goes goes uh, you know, my dear, I want to see you right away. I want you to come to my office. What? You're in bed? Okay, then I'll come to your office. <laughs> Good bits! 
all good bits. Oh. It's it's really <laughs> impressive that this movie's like that their comedy is still so green. Yeah. Like evergreen. Almost I mean this movie's not eighty nine years old. Yeah. Like this movie's old as fuck. Yeah. And it's still hilarious. Like Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's just it's stuff that just doesn't age, you know? I mean just just wordplay. Good wordplay is always gonna last, especially well, when but it's, it's coming from these fuck this fucking guy. It's also like but like I mean that whole long scene with uh cheek with uh, Chico uh, Harpo and like the the vendor guy yeah. goes on for so long, and it's like basically just like Harpo's just fucking with him, like the like the water uh, and everything, and like Chico's just being catty to him. And then of course the mirror sequence that also goes on for so long. These are like it's not just like wordplay; it's also like very fun, smart physical comedy. Well, I mean, that's the you get everything out of them. You get. Groucho is doing the 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 uh, the kind of character based humor, you know. Uh-huh. Setting aside the wordplay, he's just doing the quick one liners, right? Right. He's doing the real kind of borscht belt vaudeville schick. Uh, Harpo is the physical comedian, and then when you're talking about wordplay jokes, Chico also represents a kind of humor we don't do anymore, but was big in the vaudeville era, which is the ethnic humor, right? Yeah. Chico's whole character is he's an Italian. As I texted Tom earlier, and I can say this, uh, his original character name in the movie Coconuts, Chico's name is just Chico. In the original show Coconuts, his character's name is Willie the Wop. Oh, no. So, yeah. <laughs> um, hey, I got news for you. I got news for you. There's a movie what? we're covering. There's a movie we're covering next season where the original title pitched for it was The Wop. So get ready, folks. Well, listen, it's like uh, when uh, James Conn died earlier this year. It's everyone, you know, people made the joke. Uh, uh, it's just this, like, unspoken thing that Jews and Italians can play each other. So it's totally fine. Well, and it was also this thing of, like, especially in that, oh. in that vaudeville scene. Especially in that vaudeville scene, like, yes, accent humor, immigrant humor, ethnic humor, all of that was going on. But because it was this real melting pot, blue-collar mentality, it was a lot more, like, people just laughing at themselves you know it was certainly not a thing we would do now but i will just say there is a pronounced difference between because they come out around the same time if anybody watches wheeler and woolsey's diplomaniacs don't but if you decide to you will just be like oh jesus christ this like it's just i mean it's it's the two of them working for uh an indigenous tribe so you can imagine how that goes over the finale is all in blackface. It's just, it's just really? every possible group. There's a, a white guy playing a Chinese, like, white slaver. Um, How many it's... more years of, like, uh, the National Film Registry put in, like, movies that haven't aged that well? Well, I like, think that there, that's... How many more years of that do we have? Every year, because oh, wow. I think that that's... I mean, no, really, because, like, you know, one of the things I always point out is in, in the fourth year of the registry, Birth of a Nation mm-hmm. is, is put in. But the person who pushed for Birth of a Nation to be included is John Singleton. Oh, okay. Because he was like, look, this is a part of our film history. This is a part of our cultural history. We need to acknowledge it. Now, do I think that, like, a movie that it's not in the registry, but, but you know, could easily be, like, something like many of the films of Spencer Williams. Um, Spencer Williams was, a, a you know, an early black director. Um 
In fact, we'll be talking about Spencer Williams next season on Within Our Gates. Um, Spencer Williams is best known was best known at the time as one of the leads in Amos and Andy. And some okay. of the films he makes, like Hot Biscuits, are you would watch them today and just go, Jesus Christ, like this is so minstrelly and all that. He also makes The Blood of Jesus, which is a much more emotional uh, film. But there is something about kind of looking at Spencer Williams and what he was doing and acknowledging it for what it was in its place in its time. I mean, you know, part of the thing, like even Duck Soup has a reference to an old song. There's a one-off line that Groucho says uh, where he references a song uh, that uses a certain epithet that I won't use uh, to cover ourselves because we're a bunch of white guys on a podcast. But he says, and that's why monkeys were born, right? Mm. Uh, folks can look it up. They don't know. It's, a, it's an epithet that starts with a D. Uh, that was an old song, a, a, a racial satire song that Paul Robeson had made famous. Uh, well, I guess it'd been made famous before Paul Robeson performed it. And the whole thing of the song is it's an, it's a, a, it's a uh, intentional or not, you know, lampooning of all of the reasons why, why, you know, uh, Black people were, you know, it says, you know, black man was born to to pick the cotton and to suffer and this and that. And that's why we were born. And it's clearly like when Paul Robeson sang it, it was one of those things that you couldn't hear and not be like, Jesus, this is how could anybody think like this? You know, it, it right. was like Randy Newman, short people, right? Nobody listens to Randy Newman, short people and goes, oh, he must hate short people. But if, you know, if 30 years from now, 40 years from now. 50 years ago, somebody's watching a movie and somebody just says the line, short people have no reason to live. Like, people would just go, why? Why did you just say that? But at the time, like, it, it had that context. When we're talking about older movies, like, yeah, there are certain ones that are just absolutely downright offensive. There are other ones where, you know, it's it's more about just understanding its place and time and, and its yeah. context. I think that the Marx Brothers, for as timeless as their comedy is, there's certainly a lot more you get from understanding the era. Um, and that happens a lot with a lot of things. Um, yeah, I was just talking about this with Tom recently. Um, you know the Disney movie Robin Hood? Uh-huh, yeah. Right. If you watch that as a kid and you just watch it as a Disney movie, you just go, huh, it was a weird little Disney movie. But when I watched it, understanding the year it came out, which is 72, and you watch that opening sequence with that folksy song playing the Robin Hood and Little John on the guitar, and then it's just showing every character on a white screen with text next to them saying their names. And I just realized, like, oh, they're, this is doing an Arthur Penn, George Roy Hill, New Hollywood movie. Like, it's emulating Bonnie and Clyde oh, and Bush wow. Cassidy okay. and Sundance yeah. Kid. And if you watch it with that in mind and how it's just about... And, and later in the film, Robin and Little John are up in a tree debating whether or not to attack uh, a carriage. And they're doing a, you know, a revised version of the Let's Go to Bolivia bit from Butch Cassie and Sundance Kid. If you understand the context of the time, you get what they're lampooning. With Duck Soup, the fact that they're lampooning the Ruritanian romance adds an extra layer to that movie and that time that when you watch it isolated from that, you don't necessarily get. So Fredonia is not just a fake country. Fredonia is 
Roritania from the Prisoner of Zenda, right? It's there's more going on in their films. They are still referencing pop culture. Again, Monkey Business brings in Maurice Chevalier and has them all singing a Chevalier song. Um you know, which is a great bit, but like if you don't know who that is, it doesn't really matter. I mean, it doesn't really it doesn't really affect you. I th- so I think there is something about this film in particular that it is both an example of its particular place and time and timeless that I do think kind of makes it the quintessential Marx Brothers movie. In addition to getting to see everybody do what they do best, uh, in addition to some of the best sight gags in any of their movies, we haven't even talked about when Groucho gets the jug stuck on his head and they just draw his face on it. Excellent. (laughs) Absolutely excellent. Um, And uh, you can't knock a movie for running only 68 minutes. Much more. It's the shortest Paramount movie, right? It's probably. I I mean, yeah, it's their shortest, yes. Uh, in fact, exhibitors complained about that, that it was harder to program because it was so short. Um, yeah. Listen, much more tolerable runtime than the coconuts because a lot of not Marx Brothers stuff in that movie. Well, Chum, just just wait. You didn't let MGM era, and some of them are like close to two hours, and it's like, well, we didn't Fuck need to go. And Night at the Opera is 90 minutes. Uh, it's all easy. Yeah, Night at know. the Opera is, but I think Day at the Races is like 100. Is that two hours? If not, it's like one eleven or something like that. Um, too in much. any event, some might say too much. <laughs> um, before we do anything, I just because I doing a little bit of research myself, I found it maybe it's a debated line that if maybe he said it, maybe he didn't, but it's one of the funniest goddamn things I've ever heard. And I have I'm just gonna choose to to believe the legend. Okay, that in 1947, Grou- Groucho was on a radio show. And he was interviewing a woman, Charlotte Story, who had given birth to 20 children. <laughs> Marx apparently asked her why she had chosen to raise such a large family. And she responds, I love my husband. To which Marx responds, I love my cigar, but I take it out of my mouth once in a while. Yeah. That's, one of the, that's a very is, famous thing that he said, yeah. Which, it's a debated line. He, you know, they say he said he didn't say it. Some say he did. I don't know, but... Fuck, that's so goddamn funny. And yeah, obviously they're going to erase that shit from the recording in 1947, but... Tom, amazing. I thought you were going to bring up something else that uh, I'm now going to bring up, which bring is... Up, okay, so the Marx Brothers made a number of films, uh, you know, uh, especially they were supposed to make a couple of them, Jim. They ended up making two more because uh, Chico had gambling debts and they retired, but... Of course he did. Do you know... <laughs> do you know... Uh, that around 1960, we almost got another Marx Brothers movie? I did not, know. No? Okay, Tom, I'm going to read this to you verbatim. And I, I just want to see your reaction. I'm going to move my, my notes so that I can see it. Around 1960, the acclaimed director Billy Wilder considered writing and directing a new Marx Brothers film. Tentatively titled A Day at the UN, it was to be a comedy <laughs> of international intrigue set around the United Nations building in New York. Wilder had discussions with Groucho and Gummo, but the project was put on hold because of Harpo's ill health and abandoned when Chico died in 1961. Three years after Chico's passing, Harpo died in 1964 following a heart attack. But we almost got Billy Wilder directing the Marx Brothers in A Day at the UN. Which, fuck. God damn it. <laughs> in 19... 19- the 60s. I mean, which means there's like 
a good chance that like Jack Lemon could have been interacting with them. Mm-hmm. That would have oh, been pretty fun. Be, oh. um, uh, now look, was, we shouldn't get too excited was, about that. Guys, my favorite. Guys, my favorite. Duck like line from Mark Spillers. Please, of course. Um. All right. So, um, my favorite line of them is uh, Wu Tang Clan ain't nothing to fuck with. I thought you were going right. to do a different bit. I thought you were going to do my favorite line from the Marx Brothers, then just sit silently for a minute and go, my favorite Harpo line. Um, <laughs> I mean, Harpo is by far my favorite, but I gave this a translate to an audio podcast. But, you know, look, let's not get too excited about that Billy Wilder one. It could have been another, and let's bring this up again for the folks playing at home with their bingo cards, could have been another The Sins of Harold Diddlebach. So go back to your freshman episode if you want to hear more about that. Um, as we wind down, I do just want to say, we always wrap up talking about the Academy Awards. So without further ado, Tom, how do you think Duck Soup fared at the Academy Zero. Awards? Okay, Zero. you are correct. Was not nominated for any Oscars. For context, the nominees that year were 42nd Street, A Farewell to Arms, I Am a Fugitive from a Chain Gang, Lady for a Day, Little Women, The Private Life of Henry VIII, She Done Him Wrong, Smiling Through, State Fair, and the winner, Cavalcade. Now, of note, 42nd Street, I Am a Fugitive from a Chain Gang, She Done Him Wrong, and State Fair are all in the National Film Registry, and in fact, we will be talking about I Am a Fugitive from a Chain Gang next season on the show. So very excited to talk about that, and also very glad that we got to talk about Duck Soup with you, Mark. Thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate you coming by and helping us out. Absolutely a pleasure. Yeah. Did you have anything you wanted to plug on the way out? Yeah, um, since this airs early September, I will be in Halifax, Nova Scotia, um, doing Blockbuster Guy uh, for a few more shows. Uh, we close on September 10th. Hopefully it's been selling well. Um, I will also be at the Titanic exhibit at least once because that's a, where a lot of survivors from Titanic went. Um, I'm also uh, hosting a couple shows on some podcasts as Mike mentioned in the beginning, um, if you like your Survivor live reality games, I'm currently hosting one on Survivor Philadelphia. Probably some more ones coming up. Um, but also, I do have a I host a movie podcast with Isaiah Goins over there called At the Movies, where we watch a more current movie and an older movie. And hopefully, by the time this airs, oddly enough, my Great Dictator episode will be aired, and my co-host has never seen it before. And I'm very excited to talk to him about that. Mark, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. And everybody else, stick around. We'll be right back with our picks for the National Film Registry. The National Film Registry isn't some fixed object, frozen in time. It's always growing, adding new titles every year. These annual selections are made by the National Film Preservation Board, with members like Martin Scorsese, Alfre Woodard, and Leonard Malton and representatives from organizations like the Academy, the DGA, and the AFI coming together to debate and decide. But they don't just pull titles out of thin air. They pull from the public, people like you and us, who can submit their nominations for the registry in a form on the Library of Congress's website. What we do, at the end of each episode, is have Mike and Tom pick films not yet in the registry that they feel should be, inspired by that day's topic. At the end of each season, those films will be formally submitted to the National Film Registry for consideration on behalf of your missing out. Here are today's picks. So my pick came to me pretty easy with this one. Uh, A laugh a minute, throw everything at the wall, slapstick, anarchic, chaotic mayhem of a movie that's just 
so funny and ages pretty well and it has a like a decent little political satire bent to it not as much as uh duck soup but it's it's there uh it's one of my favorite comedies of all time you can watch it all the anytime and just laugh your ass off find a new thing that you just forgot the last time and just die laughing it's the naked gun the zaz zaz you know zucker abram abram sucker making this just pitch perfect spoof of cop movies cop shows and all of that and it's just leslie nielsen as frank drebin is one of the all-time great comedy performances ever i think it's just like a straight line from duck soup to this movie you put these two together in a double feature and you've got yourself a hell of a night of comedy just laughing your ass off the whole night i also just think these guys need to have more than I mean, it's not going to be like a hundred movies, but I think it needs, they need to have more than just airplane on the list. I know I put top secret up as a movie pick before in the season, but I think naked gun honestly might be the best movie airplane gets all the laurels, but I think naked gun might be the top of the heap. The best thing those guys ever did. And uh, it'll also get people to watch police squad. Their six episode show that got canceled because people just didn't get it. And uh, the studio didn't get it, and they didn't market it, but it led to these movies. And the first Naked Gun is perfect. So I am saying the Naked Gun, put it in. Lock it in. But can we agree the Police Squad has the best joke? Police Squad has some of the best jokes of yeah, that you Yeah, but do you know the one I'm thinking of? One of the best written jokes of all time? Uh, I think so. But I, what, can, what I can see you forming it, too. <laughs> Who are you? How did you get in here? Well, I'm a locksmith, and I'm a locksmith. I'm a locksmith. <laughs> it's just the perfect gag. It's it's just unbelievable, the writing on the show and then the movies. It's just <laughs> perfect. Just perfect. Now, Tom, you were talking about kind of a descendant of Duck Soup, and I was thinking something similar, a descendant from the Marx Brothers. Uh, the Marx Brothers did these five films with Paramount. Paramount actually had a number of great comedy stars in their roster in the first half of the 20th century, Clara Bow, Maurice Chevalier, Bob Hope. And in the second half of the 20th century, they also got a comedy team in their stable who made, I would argue, an equally important anti-establishment comedy film. And much like the Marx Brothers gave us great lines like, one morning I shot an elephant in my pajamas, how he got in my pajamas I'll never know. This group also gave us one of the great lines in comedy. Dave's not here, man. That's right. I'm talking about Cheech and Chong. In 1978, for Paramount, the comedy duo of Cheech and Chong made the uh, film Up in Smoke, a movie that Paramount refused to keep funding after they saw some of the early footage because they just didn't understand it. It is... Up in Smoke is one of the... Truly great. I mean, it's on the one hand, it's not just a matter of like, oh, it's a great stoner comedy. It's a great comedy about stoners. And the one thing that Cheech and Chong did so well is they really understood. They were comedians whose comedy was about the drug scene rather than drug comedians, if that makes sense. And that's something you see in Up in Smoke extensively. I mean, when Tom Skerritt shows up as, I believe his name is Cousin Strawberry, the coked-out Vietnam vet, so goddamn funny. So goddamn funny. 
it, it is just a movie. It wasn't necessarily totally understood in its time. Uh, I think it was, you know, it was a but but you watch it now, and it's just so smartly written for a movie about two idiots. And the fact that, much like how uh, Duck Soup concludes with my beloved uh, All God's Children Got Guns, this movie also ends in a musical number, which is uh, Cheech and Chong performing at a battle of the bands with their glam rock spoof Earache My Eye, which is a great track altogether. Up in Smoke is 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 an, an iconic film of an era. It's one of the great comedies of the 70s. It is also uh, a cultural touchstone on a, you know, on a representational level as well. I mean, the fact that Cheech and Chong were, uh, I mean, Cheech Marin is, you know, one of the iconic uh, Latino comedians. It's it's a great film. I Many say they never replicated it. I saw the Corsican Brothers once and thought it was funny. I'm sure it won't hold up. But Up in Smoke is the classic. And I think just for everything it represents from a countercultural perspective, uh, from a comedy perspective, Up in Smoke should absolutely be in the National Film Registry. Also, Dave's not here, man. Let's all go to the lobby, lobby, lobby. Thank you again to Mark Levy for joining us. Next week, we're skipping the pumpkin spice lattes and jumping straight into the spirit of Christmas. Join us for It's a Wonderful Life with special guest Emily St. James. Don't forget to follow the show wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you again next time. on your missing out. They honor movies of historical, cultural, or aesthetic importance on the National Film Registry.